I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. It's now the beginning of April and we begin as ever with our friends, the sailors on the whale ship, the Swan of Hull. They're trapped in the ice off the west coast of Greenland in the spring of 1837 and they've been there since October. These readings come from a transcription of the logbook held in the archives of the Caird Library of the National Maritime Museum. The transcription has been made especially for us. You are the first people ever to hear these words read aloud. So this podcast episode is itself a little piece of maritime history. The last we heard, they had tried to make a break for it, sending several members of their crew off in a boat in a bid to reach land at nearby Danish settlements. Wednesday, 5th of April. Light breezes and clear weather. One pound of flour was weighed out yesterday to each man, being an increase of four ounces to the usual weekly allowance. Some of them still lie in a deplorable state of scurvy. Our little stock of antiscorbutics all expended, and what the result will be, God only knows. Our time is getting very short, and a few more weeks will decide all. To him who has preserved us this far, we will trust and pray for a continuation of his divine protection. Thermometer maximum 28 degrees, minimum 7. A 265 gallon shake cut up for fuel. Latitude by observation 70 degrees by 31 north. Thursday, 6th of April. Light breezes with clear weather. At 1 pm, the ship began to drive south. At 4 hours 30 minutes pm, while walking the quarter deck, observed two men about four miles from the ship standing on a hummock of ice and wafting a handkerchief. On their being seen by the mate from the masthead a few miles astern of them, called all hands and launched a boat towards them, for the purpose of getting over a lane of water, when, what was our astonishment, we were told that we beheld the only surviving part of our unfortunate boat's crew, Mr. Studdart and Daniel Knight. A party proceeded further and fell in with Robert Darby, prostrate and dying on the floe, and before he could be conveyed to the boat, the vital spark had fled. Such was the severity of frost that out of the fifteen hands that launched the boat to their assistance, only two escaped being frostbitten, the thermometer at 28 degrees below zero at the time of sunset. Here, the following words have been crossed out. Dissension and bad conduct within. The log then continues. 
the sudden and severe change of weather were the continued causes of this most unfortunate and lamentable expedition. Annexed to this day's work is a journal of their proceedings since they left the ship from the pen of Mr. Studdart together with Daniel Knight's signature. Latitude by observation is 70 degrees by 28 north. Unfortunately, the account of the expedition no longer survives with the logbook, so we will never know what misfortunes struck the crew of that small boat. Today I'm speaking with Dr Paul Brown about the fascinating story of the sinkings during the Falklands War. Paul is a maritime historian whose recent publications include Britain's Historic Ships, Historic Sail, Maritime Portsmouth and the Portsmouth Dockyard Story, as well as articles in leading maritime magazines. Paul is a member of the Society for Nautical Research and the Britannia Naval Research Association and the Secretary of the Naval Dockyard Society. He was formerly a consultant to National Historic Ships, the UK's authority on the preservation of historic ships and boats and he's written a wonderful new book called Abandoned Ship the real story of the sinkings in the Falklands War. When Argentinian forces invaded the Falklands in April 1982 the British government responded by dispatching a task force to the Atlantic to wrest back control of the islands. The resulting war saw modern weapon systems including cruise missiles, nuclear subs and vertical short takeoff and landing aircraft all tested in combat for the first time and to devastating effect. In the aftermath of the Falklands War, official documents were released, but many were heavily censored through redactions, and others were kept under wraps as top secret, so that a full understanding of events could not be gained. Following the passing of the Freedom of Information Act in 2000, some documents have been declassified, and others have had many of the redactions lifted. But still, there remained many unanswered questions – Using the Freedom of Information Act, Paul Brown uncovered many of the facts surrounding not only the controversial torpedoing of ARA General Belgrano, but also the sinking of six British ships, HMS Sheffield, HMS Ardent, HMS Antelope, HMS Coventry, SS Atlantic Conveyor and RFA Sir Galahad. And I'm going to talk to Paul today about his wonderful discoveries. Paul, thanks so much for talking to me today. It's a pleasure, Sam. So this is a wonderful book, um, The Real Story of the Sinkings in the Falklands War, Abandon Ship. Why did you choose to write a book about this particular period in this particular location? It's a question I ask everyone. I'm always fascinated in what attracts them to the subject. Well, my main interest is in 20th century naval history. And I remember, of course, seeing all the vivid pictures on the TV at the time of the Falklands War. Uh, And when when about three years ago, the real reasons for the loss of the Sheffield were finally revealed, I thought, well, it might be worth looking into the other ships as well and just see what there is there that freedom of information requests at this rather later stage might reveal. So that set me off on the trail. For those people who don't know, how does the Freedom of Information Request system work? Well, it applies to government documents. And um, in theory, they start with the assumption that everything can be revealed. Um, And you can apply to the Freedom of Information Officer, in this case at the MOD, 
and they look at whether there are any good reasons why it shouldn't be revealed. For example, that it's in the national strategic security interest to not reveal the information, or maybe the information would be distressing to the relatives of people who died if it was graphic. So there are, there are several reasons, but I was pleased to find that most of the information which had previously been redacted or censored was in fact subsequently released once I made the inquiries. Mm. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. Why, why do you think the Falklands War is important? Why do you think we need books like yours? Well, I think the Falklands War was one of the last uh, kind of imperial um, escapades, if you like. Um, it was important from the point of view of the Falkland Islanders who were desperate to retain British sovereignty. And they wouldn't accept any um, compromise. From, an, from another angle, from a, if you like a historian's angle and a naval strategist's angle, it was very important because it was the first time since World War II that modern forces had been in combat together, particularly modern navies. It was the first time nuclear powered submarines were used in combat. The first time the vertical short takeoff Harriers and that type of aircraft was used in combat. The first time cruise missiles were used against warships. So there was a whole lot of stuff that was going to be very interesting to analysts and strategists. And so after the war, all that information got poured over. The US Navy and the US Defence Forces uh, produced several reports, for example, analysing all the minutiae of the war to see what they could learn. And for the Royal Navy, there was a lot of learning too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating period. One of the interesting things about it, I think, is you said you you remember it quite clearly. You're you're a little older than me. Um, I'm not even going to guess at how much older than no, me you, you are. I, mean, <laughs> uh, I can't. I was alive during the Falklands, but I was five. Yeah. I can't remember it. Um, but you know, here we we have a war that it, it is in. It's within living memory for a really yeah. large portion of of the population. Um, how important do you think that is? Or was it particularly interesting as a historian getting into something that people could actually remember? I think it is because although I spend a lot of time looking at official reports and they're very analytical, they can be very dry and you yeah. don't get a very good sense of the emotions uh, that the people there experienced. Um, when you talk to them firsthand or read their testimonies firsthand, because many of them were written shortly after the war, um, you get a much more vivid picture of what it was like for those people who were actually involved. That's not to yeah. say there aren't downsides, because especially a, long a lot of years afterwards, their recall may be rather uh, dodgy. Um, if it even if it was good immediately after the event, which it may not have been due to, you know, stress um, and that kind of factor. So it gives you a lot of great insights that you can't otherwise get. And I was privileged to talk to um, a few people who were uh, who were actively involved on warships 
at the time, but I also used a lot of the testimonies that had been recorded years ago after the war. Oh, those are wonderful. Where are those kept? Well, there's a whole... The main ones are in the Imperial War Museum. Yeah. But also, of course, quite a few of the... Especially the seniors figures wrote books very soon after the war. So you get a very detailed testimonial testimony from them about what it was like. It was interesting what you were saying about things being in living memory. One of the big myths, I think, about being a historian and writing history is that just because it happened relatively recently doesn't make our job any easier. No. In fact, the one one thing you can prove uh, when looking at, at you know the history of any accounts, but particularly naval warfare, is that just because someone was there in no way means that they actually know what happened (laughs) or or they've got a good way of describing it. In fact, often being there precludes their understanding because of the chaos of war or whatever it might be. So you've got to be very careful. Yeah, Um, yeah, and this will really kind of bring that to light. Um, I was very interested here because it was so close to the present day. So many of the documents that were released in the immediate aftermath were heavily censored through redactions, other, others co- kept completely um, top secret. I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, about how, how you work with documents that have been redacted. I, I tend to work with periods that are much older where that's not actually an issue. Well, of course, you find that the, probably the most interesting bits have got great big black, thick black <laughs> lines through them. Uh, although, interestingly, if you search the internet, you occasionally find a copy of the report it's got something in it that has not been redacted, even though the copy you've got, it is redacted. I did find that on one or two occasions. But otherwise, it was just the slog of contacting the MOD and going through their processes and waiting for them to respond. But they, they were very cooperative, I had to say. Um, Do they have a... I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I'm assuming that if there is a redacted document, that somewhere on earth there is the same document that's not redacted. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. So they go right back to the unredacted document, uh, compare it with the redacted one, and then go through a process with a sort of checklist that they have of any factors which might preclude them removing the redaction. They work that way around, which is good. Um, And there's a team of people at the MOD... And you do get the feeling that they're working for you almost. You know, they're not trying to withhold the information. They're trying to find reasons for releasing it, even though they can't always. And I suppose that whoever the the great redactor was sitting there with his black highlighter, (laughs) um, they're kind of working for the historian as well, because it means that you know that that line is (laughs) important. And it's really important because, I mean, sometimes as a historian... Uh, you know, you can quite happily sail past something that doesn't look important, but actually yes. it's crucial. Yeah. And here yeah. you've got someone, you know, yeah. saying, look, if you can find out what this is, it's really, yeah. really important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I love that idea. Um, well, let's let's look, let's look at the events, look at some of the sinkings. Should we start with the Belgrano? What happened there? Well, this was May the 2nd. Things were just beginning to hot up uh, in the Falklands because the previous day, the... Um, Some of the task force planes had uh, attacked um, Argentine, the airfield at Stanley, for example. Um, And on the 2nd of May, the Argentines were planning an attack on the task force using 
a pincer movement from the north, their aircraft carrier and some destroyers, and from the south, their cruiser, the Belgrano, also with a couple of destroyers. And the idea was the aircraft carrier would move in, launch its Skyhawk aircraft, which would bomb our carriers. They would also try and get some pop shots in with Exocet. Assuming they did some damage, the Belgrano group would move in from the south and finish them off with Belgrano's heavy guns. Now, Wood, Admiral Woodward, Rear Admiral Woodward, who was in charge of the task carrier battle group, got wind of this through intelligence and so on. Um, and he sent the nuclear submarine Conqueror to shadow, find and shadow Belgrano. She was initially just off Staten Island on the tip of South America, where the Conqueror detected her. And the Conqueror was able to <coughs> shadow the um, Belgrano for 30 hours or so um, before she eventually struck. Meanwhile, the aircraft carrier had decided that the weathering conditions were not good enough for the launch of the Skyhawks and the operation was called off. The Belgrano reversed course in the middle of the night on the 1st to the 2nd of May. Conqueror still following her. She was outside the exclusion zone, so Conqueror's rules of engagement meant she couldn't attack her. Hmm. However, the Argentines knew that when push came to shove, they couldn't be completely safe outside the exclusion zone. After all, there was a kind of war on. Um, well, Eventually, Admiral Woodward was pushing for permission for the Conqueror to attack. The War Cabinet, chaired by Margaret Thatcher, met at Chequers. It was a Sunday. At one, and at one o'clock, they decided that they would allow Belgrano to attack, uh, Conqueror to attack, even though Belgrano was A, outside the exclusion zone, and B, now steaming away from the task force. That proved to be a very controversial decision. Hmm. Nevertheless. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yes. Now, uh, Conqueror moved in, fired three torpedoes. Two of them struck with devastating consequences. The ship started flooding very rapidly and they had very little organised damage control procedures. So the ship started to sink and they had to abandon ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Conqueror turned away because she didn't want to be attacked by two destroyers. The the Belgrano had not been attempting any of the recognised anti-submarine tactics. So her, her anti-submarine tact strategy was, was woeful. She wasn't altering her speed. She wasn't zigzagging determinedly. Her escorting destroyers were both on the same side of her, leaving the other side open for the Conqueror to come in. And they didn't have their sonar turned on. And Balgrano could have edged up to what was the Birdwood Bank shallows that Conqueror would have danger going into. But despite the fact that Conqueror had been following them for 30 hours, they were totally oblivious to it. It was a tragic loss of life. 323 men died in the Balgrano. Um, And it was the biggest single loss of life in the whole of the Falklands conflict. Yeah, and a very controversial one as well, as you you were highlighting there. Um, Do you you think that that sense of controversy kind of got through to the British public? Very much so, because um, it wasn't long before the newspapers started detecting inconsistencies in the story that the, um, the John Knott, the the Minister of Defence, was putting out when compared with some statements that the naval commanders were putting out. And so um, one particular MP, Tom Dial, got on the trail and um, a a senior civil servant who'd been assembling a dossier of all the Balgrano documents released them to him. That was Clive Ponting. So there there was an enormous amount of publicity and then a public trial of Ponting for breaking the Official Secrets Act. And this mm. went on for months, um, during which, of course, the whole story came out that the Belgrano was steaming away and was anyway outside the exclusion zone and was 260 miles from the nearest British warship, apart from Conqueror. Yeah. So one of the fascinating things about it is we've got this controversial sinking of the Belgrano. But of course, there were six British ships that were that were sunk, um, yeah. you know, during during this this war. Um, we haven't got time to go go through all of them. So should we should we think about HMS Sheffield? There's a fascinating one to begin yeah. with. Well, the sinking of Sheffield was a revenge for the sinking of the Belgrano. It came just two days afterwards. And the the Argentines deployed their most potent weapon, which was the Exocet missile. 
and two Super A-10-Dard jets, armed with exosets, one each, took off from Rio Grande Air Base in Tierra del Fuego and approached the task group, the carrier battle group. Now, Sheffield was one of three destroyers acting as an air defence screen on the west side of the task group. So they were the outer ring of defence. And they were designed to intercept and destroy incoming aircraft and missiles. So it's rather ironic that Sheffield herself succumbed to uh, the Exocet missiles. The, the raid was detected by one of her sister ships, one of the other destroyers there, the Glasgow, who sent a warning immediately. That was three minutes before the missile actually struck Sheffield. So in theory, Sheffield had three minutes to react and do all the right things. In fact, she did virtually none of them because the principal anti-aircraft officer was missing from the operations room. Two of his staff were not at their posts. The one officer who was there didn't do the right things. The ship could have fired chaff to de decoy, to deflect the missile. Its anti-aircraft missile uh, operations and short-range guns should have been manned even before the attack and weren't until the very last seconds, by which time it was too late. And the missile, one of the two missiles that were fired, struck the Sheffield, left a gaping hole in her side, created huge fires, they fought the fires for four hours, actually, with the help of two other ships which came alongside. But they couldn't, uh, they couldn't beat the fires. The ship was a wreck. It was no longer a, a combatant unit. Uh, and so Sheffield was abandoned. She was the first. And it was a huge shock to people back in the UK mm. to know that, we, hey, we'd lost a modern warship like Sheffield. And of course, they didn't know at the time the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hell of a story. So what was the what was the human cost of that sinking? Uh, the, the, the cost of life was um, 22 died. Yeah. 22 yeah. died. Um, all in all in the ship, probably more or less immediately when the when the missile struck and exploded. There was some doubt initially about whether that missile actually exploded. The warhead detonated, but from the information I've seen, I think it almost certainly did. And that and that caused devastation in a number of areas, it, the computer room, the operations room, the galley. Um, and a lot of pe those were those were where the people died. Yeah, that's a very sad story. And um it's the the other ships primarily, isn't it? Ardent, Antelope, Coventry, the SS Atlantic Conveyor, the RFA, Sir Galahad. These are ones which you've discovered new information about, so you can bring to light about, about how they sank. Yeah. Well, I think Ardent is an interesting one because um, she was defending the the um, landing sites uh, in off St. Carlos Water. Um, she was just round the corner, about 10 or 15 miles away, and she was supposed to be stopping aircraft coming in from the enemy aircraft coming in from the southwest. 
fact, she was pretty poorly equipped to do that, given the armament she had. Um, but uh, she, she uh, was exposed to two successive attacks by Skyhawk jets on the 21st of May. First attack, four jets. They bombed her. Two or three bombs hit her. A couple of them exploded. Um, as a result of that, she lost her main armament. The gun lost all power and the Cat launcher, the guided missiles launcher, was blown off the top of the, the ship. Um, and then they were still in the process of recovering from that when about 20 minutes later there was another attack, this time by five Skyhawks. Again, more, more bombs hit, a couple of bombs hit aft. All the damage was done aft on the ship. Now, they were faced with a difficult situation. A lot of shit, a lot of damage had been done. There were fires raging in various compartments aft on the ship, and the ship was beginning to develop a list. Some firefighting efforts were underway. Um, they were hampered by um, loss of fire main pressure and that kind of problem. Well, the the commanding officer, Alan West, asked for reports from his first lieutenant and his marine engineer officer on the damage and the prospects for the ship. Now, they reported to him that, well, the first lieutenant said the sh we've lost the stern aft. That wasn't true. Um, the marine engineer said, we, I think the, sh the ship is going to plunge soon. It's going to sink. Well, that was a, a poor assessment, as it turned out. We know we have the benefit of hindsight here. And Alan West, according to the Board of Inquiry report, didn't adequately question those assessments. And he decided to abandon ship because he thought he'd have to save lives and the ship was probably going to plunge any minute. So he was a bit surprised three or four hours later uh, to see his ship was still afloat. Mm. Um, and the other sad thing about it was that an attempt was made to search the ship before the abandonment, but it was far from complete search. In particular, nobody tried to enter with breathing apparatus the damaged areas. Now, some people had come out alive from those damaged areas. So who else was in there? who maybe was pinned down, injured or whatever. But in the panic to abandon the ship, again, the commander got the wrong information. He assumed a full search had been done. In fact, it hadn't. When they found out later that those areas hadn't been searched, it was very much on their conscience. So those two aspects of the loss of the Arden only came out when I was managed to get the um, the report released through freedom of information requests. Hmm. That must have been a, an exciting time for you as a historian, realising you're coming across something that's that's entirely new. That's right. It was yes. Twenty two hmm. men died, so that was very very tragic. But there was a whole new story had opened up about why the Ardent was lost. And the other ship is the Atlantic Conveyor. What type of vessel was she? 
She was a Cunard merchant ship uh, designed to carry containers and cars. And she was laid up in Liverpool and was requisitioned by the MOD, very short notice, to take down to the Falklands aircraft, which had to be carried on deck, both harriers and helicopters, and a whole host of military equipment, which was stowed below deck on the on the vehicle decks as they had been. And they included uh, all the materials for building an airstrip ashore for the harriers, for example, a whole lot of other stuff. Um, now, she got down to the region of the exclusion zone and was held off for some days. But she had to be brought forward to take her stuff into San Carlos water where it was needed. And the helicopters in particular were going to be vital for transporting troops from the beachhead where they'd landed across the island of West Falkland to Stanley and Goose Green, where the Argentine troop positions were. So they included Chinook, massive troop-carrying helicopters, and Wessex helicopters. Now, Admiral Woodward decided to use Atlantic Conveyor as a screen for the carriers, along with a couple of other auxiliaries, so that if there was an attack from the west, they were going to be hit first rather than the aircraft carriers. That was a very questionable decision, given her strategic cargo. And bearing in mind, she was completely unarmed and also had none of the damage control features that you would find in a warship. So she was very exposed. And again, it was an Exocet attack. Uh, she was the only other ship that was sunk by Exocet. Um, when the Exocet attack came, the, the Argentines had a cunning plan to come from the northwest whereas all the other attacks had come from the southwest. And this caught the, the task group rather unawares and a decision to change course when it was realised the attack was coming was made, but the wrong decision was made about the course the ship should turn on based on the direction they originally thought it might come from rather than the direction it was actually coming from. Um, so Atlantic Conveyor should have put her very strong stern with its huge ramp in the direction of the missile to prevent A, the smallest profile and B, the strongest point of the ship. In fact, because of the error in signalling, when the missile hit, she was almost broadside on. Hmm. Both missiles that were fired entered the ship. Again, havoc ensued and very quickly, it was realised that the fire couldn't be combated and uh, the ship had to be abandoned, sadly, with the loss of 12 lives, but also with her very valuable cargo. Mm. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that can really, you know, turn the events on their head when you've got something yeah. so strategically important. Yeah. And again, that didn't come out. And even in the Board of Inquiry report, that wrong signal wasn't highlighted. You had to go through it in great detail to realise what had happened and why this had happened, because it wasn't, for whatever reason, either the Board of Inquiry didn't realise it or they chose to suppress it. Yeah. Well, um, 
such a such a fascinating story and fascinating events. And I'd encourage everyone who's listening to go and go and buy Paul's book, where you can find out so much more about these extraordinary sinkings. Paul, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Sam, very much. It's been great. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Do please find us on social media to keep in touch with what we're doing. The Society for Nautical Research has a Twitter account at Nautical History and a Facebook page. And the Mariner's Mirror podcast has its own YouTube channel and Instagram, both of them loaded with fabulous material. Please help us by leaving a review on iTunes. It makes all the difference. And best of all, please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk and your annual subscription will go towards publishing the most important maritime history and towards preserving our maritime past.